JM in the AM. Friday morning, Erev Shabbos. Dr. Stuart Ditchick. Dr. Stuart Ditchick needs no introduction for this audience. And uh, mo- many of us, if not all of us at this point, know how active he's been on the front lines of the COVID-19 situation. Dr. Ditchick, welcome back to JM in the AM. Good morning, Nachum. How are you? Thank you. Thanks for having me. I know you have news for us, which we'll get to. Let me try to ask a couple of just rapid-fire questions just to clear a couple of things up. You're you're an expert on this like no one else is. Number one, there's an impression in our community and across the United States that if somebody had coronavirus, even if they tested positive for it, not just felt they had symptoms of it, but tested positive for it, uh, there's the feeling that they cannot be in this season, in this season, cannot be reinfected. Is that true or false? That is absolutely false. There is no data yet that supports that at all. In fact, there is uh, emerging data that uh, we're all looking at whether antibody protection offers uh, any protection at all. You know, the question is whether a person can get it a second time. Uh, Most people who are making those claims are equating it with the typical flu immunity. Uh, where somebody gets the flu one season and they're assumed uh, that they won't get it again. We clearly know that that's not true with the flu, that uh, with the flu there are different variants uh, or mutations that uh, you can get a different version of the flu. With COVID, we absolutely have no uh, clear-cut data yet, uh, no data that's been released by the CDC uh, that immunity is conferred uh, by this test that's being done. What people are conflating, and this is a critical distinction because I even hear physicians sometimes in the community uh, conflating this issue. Uh, when antibody testing started a couple of weeks ago, it was started for the purpose of donating plasma to critically ill or seriously ill COVID patients. Uh, what they wanted, the Mayo Clinic and Mount Sinai, was uh, to collect uh, antibody information so that they could then use uh, the individual's plasma who already developed some antibodies uh, to help critically ill patients. Never did either of those institutions nor the CDC make any claim that that antibody test could be used for immunity to tell people whether it was okay to re-engage with high-risk patients and the like. So that's where the misinformation started. Following that, Uh, We see the predominance of labs now and clinics uh, advertising uh, antibody testing and, in many cases, uh, claiming that it's an immunity test. It is not an immunity test. Uh, The purpose of looking at antibodies right now uh, will be to figure out, and and New York State is doing that currently. They're doing surveillance uh, antibody testing, not for the purpose of guaranteeing immunity, Uh, They're doing it to figure out how many of us have had COVID already so they can calculate what's called the R-naught or the uh, infection rate that one person can cause to another. How How many people will one person infect? How reliable reliable is that test? Is that test 100% reliable just to provide that information? The, The antibody tests that are out there vary. Uh, some labs have FDA-approved tests. Some labs have tests that they've created, uh, meaning that uh, these tests are being looked at by the FDA. There will be very reliable antibody testing or quantitative testing soon. However, again, we cannot tell people 
that they are immune until the CDC and the experts at the CDC tell us what number uh, we need to know. In other words, the titer of the antibody that tells us that we have maybe some protection. We don't have that information yet. No physician does in this country. How reliable? Uh, and- how reliable is the regular test? Meaning the tests are now being used just to determine if someone is not was, but is positive or negative for COVID. It depends which lab is doing it. It depends which machine the lab is using. Uh, there are labs that are more. Some labs have a better uh, reliability than others in terms of which machine they're using. Uh, every lab has a different, uh, not every lab, but there's about uh, four or five machines out there. You know, you've heard the names banted about the Abbott machine. Right. Uh, there's many uh, different machines out there and technology that's being used. But again, to me, the reliability of the test, whether you go to any of the commercial labs or not, is not nearly as important right now as the misperception right. that the antibody test could be used to tell you you are now immune. We had a, uh, many cases in Brooklyn recently in the last week where people took an antibody test. Uh, they, told, they were told you have IgG antibodies, you're good to re-engage in the community, and they visited some high-risk patients. Two of the patients had lymphoma. Uh, one of them was an 85-year-old senior who was then visited by their grandchildren. That's inappropriate. We cannot give misinformation like that. I I got the impression from you, Dr. Stuart Ditchick, with us. I got the impression from you off the air during a conversation that reinfection you fear might be worse than infection. Is it because it's a second time or you're simply saying that this thing is so bad that a reinfection could get you a really bad case of it? We we don't know yet, Nachum. Quite frankly, you know, we're... The data is moving so quickly right now that we have to slow down and look at this thing. Uh, You know, the problem is uh, there's pressure on the economic side to reopen everything everywhere. Clearly, there are states... Which you get, by the way. You get that, obviously. Oh, I get it, and I agree with it. My practice, like every other business, is suffering terribly, uh, and I'm very concerned about the economy. However, we have to understand that Every state is different, and there are regions within the states that are different. New York State is in a very, very different situation than Florida or than Texas or other states because we've had the dramatic, overwhelming number of cases and fatalities. So my view is let the experts at the state and federal level direct us on how to safely reopen our society so we don't suffer another wave. And the second wave will be very difficult to handle worse than the first because, not because there'll be more cases, it's going to be worse because the resources are already stretched within the healthcare system. Right. That's why another wave will be worse. Not because there'll be more cases, <laughs> plus at but some because p- our hospitals are already stressed. Pl- right plus, now. plus at some point, you and your colleagues have to start dealing with all the other issues that people have that have been ignored and uh, not dealt, not dealt with over the last Correct. couple of months. Cancer so, patients so, waiting for elective surgery. Right. So when uh, mem- so when members of our community get on the air or anywhere and they say this, ninety nine percent of the People in my building in Borough Park had it. Uh, you know, 99% of, of Williamsburg has had it. Everybody who is this place on Purim, the 1,000 people that came to this place on Purim, 900 of them had it. it, it 
they have to be told about reinfection. They have to be told if they're not careful about washing hands, about social distancing, about masks, etc., and staying at home whenever possible. They have to be told they could get this easily a second time. I don't want to say easily, but there's no reason to believe that they can't get this a second time. There are so many variables. You know, one of the biggest issues that we're looking at now, Malcolm, and this is a huge issue not discussed in the media yet, we, we know that many families have suffered unfortunately, serious COVID illnesses, and in many cases, deaths, more than one member of the family, right? right. We've seen that within our own community. Right. I have uh, families in my practice where there have been two, you know, seniors or high-risk people who've been lost a friend, in the same family. A, a friend of mine lost so, his parents in one week, lost both his parents in one week. Correct. And now in siblings, we are looking at whether there are genetic uh, predilections within individuals or within families that put them at higher risk severe COVID disease. This is a new disease. This is what I think the public doesn't really understand, but doctors understand it. Remember, this is comparable to doctors in the 1930s who were learning about polio when it first appeared. We, We are seeing a disease that we have never seen before, and physicians are learning about this disease every day in ways that we didn't know the day before. And that's why, you know, I started talking about the pediatric component of COVID yesterday, because we're now learning about how it affects children, and we're only at the first stage of learning about that. Good news or bad news? Uh, both. <laughs> let me let me hear. What do you what do you now know about kids in COVID? So the the, the British warned us about ten twelve days ago, uh, that and the Europeans that they started seeing uh, a. Um, uh, similarity in children to a disease called Kawasaki disease or even tox- elements of toxic shock syndrome. Uh, in a group of children, they saw about 13 children reported uh, from the literature in London that were having uh, an inflammatory disease of the blood vessels, including the coronary arteries of the heart, similar to what's called Kawasaki disease. So then we, saw, we heard of a report in, in Stanford and three here in Columbia And yesterday I was referred a patient uh, who uh, I discovered actually had, it was a patient that had COVID over six, seven weeks ago, six weeks ago. uh, And she presented now with some unusual uh, presentation and it was referred to me by another physician. And I worked her up quickly yesterday and she actually was found to have an effusion around the heart called pericarditis and pericardial effusion, uh, along with some other findings. Thank God she's absolutely fine. She looks great, and she needs no further treatment other than monitoring. But this is the first reported case, and we're going to report this shortly, of pericarditis related to COVID. Now, what's interesting is the cardiology group from Maimonides, which I, who I worked with on this case, uh, told me that they actually have five other cases that were discovered to be Kawasaki, four of them were Kawasaki-like syndromes back in February, in late February, that were probably uh, COVID-linked in children. They all did fine. They required hospitalization and treatment. And a fifth one who was treated recently with a very rapid heartbeat, which was COVID-linked as well. So we now know that children do develop uh, either sometimes a syndrome during COVID where it can affect the blood vessels, uh, vasculitis type illness. The youngest child, the, young, the, reporting. the youngest child in that group is how old? Oh, in the the earlier cases in February were young. They were anywhere from six months 
to oh, wow. four or five years of age. I don't have their exact ages in front of me. Wow. Uh, the child I saw yesterday was a teenager. Uh, and the important message is that, again, this is an evolving issue. We, we didn't know three weeks ago that children uh, would get these post-COVID inflammatory issues. Uh, we didn't know uh, until uh, 10, 12 days ago that we were seeing clusters of this. And now we're looking back to late February and seeing that there were issues uh, with certain children with disease related to COVID that we didn't realize. So uh, the good news is that children continue to fare beautifully with COVID. Thank God we have virtually no mortality or almost no cases of fatalities in children. But we do have issues we need to monitor in kids now uh, related to COVID that we're going to get the word out. And physicians are learning this as we speak. Yeah. Uh, I get that. JM and the AM with Dr. Stuart Ditchick with us live via telephone. Um, all right. So some of the things that, uh, you know, it's funny, you talk about February. Now, almost everyone I speak to, including myself, by the way, is talking about what ailments they had in February that must have been COVID. And I assume that that's, no, that's, that's normal human behavior to now think back and uh, assume that, that if they had a bad cold or, uh, or a headache in, the, in or, high, or fever, some people had fever in February and tested negative for the flu, that they uh, likely had it. Now, what do you think of this statistic? That the it's likely a thirty five percent of the country has already had it. Do you think that that's e- even close to reality? Oh, I I don't know. Again, the that data is too early to say exactly because it's very state by state. You know, we know that New York, uh, uh, New York State, this past week did a random COVID screenings in shopping places and on the street, and they found that in New York State alone we had variability. In New York State, for instance. Uh, New York City, we had a 21% or so rate of people who already showed evidence of having had COVID by uh, the presence of IgG antibodies. In upstate New York, that number was about 13%. So uh, it varies from regions within our own state. But we know that right now it's about 20, 21% of people walking around have had it. However, they did another screening uh, yesterday. I believe they started screening another 1,000 random people uh, in New York State, and they're looking for the next number. Why are they doing those screenings every few days the state? Uh, they're doing that to see what rate we have of people who already have had the virus, and that will be critical in determining when the city can reopen. Well, why, That's how we figure but it if, out. But if, you, one of the ways. but if you fear that reinfection is possible and anybody can transmit that, why would it matter if someone had it? Well, it, we again, that's I don't know yet that what the reinfection number possibility is. I don't want to give the wrong impression. Right, I hear that. What I you're, what you're I just be, you're just being extra cautious. We just don't know yet, and that's why this information that uh, antibodies confers immunity is not the case yet. Right. We may know that in two months, or in yeah. six weeks, or in three weeks. I hear right that. Now we you're you're, that. you're being extra cautious, like you have been this entire time, which is to be co- which is commendable. Uh, because right. we've seen what what the effect is of this virus. This is a horrible, horrible virus that can kill people very quickly. And medical staff, well, and you've seen it up uh, close. Those of us who've been in the hospitals are terrified of what the implications could be of another wave. Yeah. Um, the drug, this week's drug, forget about the ones that the, the president and others were talking about a couple of weeks ago, but there's one that starts with an R that's being talked about as a treatment. Do you have any, uh, any opinion on it? <laughs> sure. Remdesivir. Uh, that's the drug being put out by Gilead. Uh, remdesivir was studied. Dr. Fauci, as you all know, made a very 
uh, exciting announcement earlier in the week that they decided to release uh, the study to everybody, another drug to everybody in the study group because they had seen very uh, significant trends. There were decreased trends in the number of people dying who got it, the people who got out of the hospital. Uh, the hospitalization rate was decreased significantly statistically in the treatment group. Uh, so that drug is now uh, destined for FDA approval. Uh, it blocks an enzyme called RNA polymerase, which is needed for replication of the virus in the human body. Uh, and the great news about remdesivir is not so much, it's not a cure, right? There are no cures. But the great news is that that drug proved that if we can block enzyme activity at the RNA polymerase level, uh, we can block the other enzyme activity levels as we block it at other levels of enzyme requirements for the virus. So other drugs will be effective as well that are being studied. So that's the good news with remdesivir. However, it's not a cure-all. It's simply one more treatment right. in the many that we're looking at. Uh, Dr. Stuart Ditchick's with us, JMNAM, overtime on this Friday morning. Um, there is a company that has studied or has followed the news of the United Kingdom, I think it's an Oxford uh, trial uh, for a vaccine that worked in monkeys and now is being started to to you know be experimented in human beings. They're all in. They are investing in tens of millions of doses because they want to be first to market. Obviously, they if they make the right call here, it's going to be an amazing business boon for them. We understand that. If it is correct, though, that this UK thing is right and that they have made the right move in terms of trying to process tens of millions of vaccines, this vaccine could be av- available nationwide by the end of 2020. What do you think of this piece of news? So I'll tell you, I, I read that, but I, I was more interested in the Pfizer announcement a few days ago. Uh, Pfizer announced that their vaccine, they're working with the company in Germany that was ahead of, uh, ahead of the ball, ahead of the game on the vaccine. Uh, and they announced a few days ago that they're going into large scale phase three studies within the next few days here in the United States. Uh, to try to get a vaccine to market as early as the fall or early winter. Wow. Now, I was the reason I paid attention to that announcement, quite frankly, is because Pfizer is a public company, as we all know. And I think that they would not have made that announcement unless they had a very good idea that the FDA was going to look seriously at that vaccine. Here's the challenge. Um, we know that Dr. Fauci originally and correctly said that at the beginning of this, it would be 12 to 18 months till we get the vaccine. I think to his credit, he revised that and he said, maybe we can get it as early as the winter. I think he's going to revise it again if we get good phase three quick studies. And what I asked for, as many experts have, Henry Miller, who's one of the prominent uh, FDA biotech founders, uh, founders of the biotech division at the FDA, he put out an editorial that I posted last week where he said that we should actually adopt many different ways to uh, the vaccine right now, a rapid uh, uh, development of the vaccine. But he also said that we should acknowledge for the first time the European approval process because it may be quicker than ours. And if the Europeans give a green light to a virus, we should use it. I'm strongly in favor of getting a vaccine as early as possible. If somebody told me, whether it's Pfizer or any other company, that they would have a vaccine by October, I would say that is a godsend and we should run for it because uh, we need a vaccine to protect the high-risk people within our population, including the seniors. 
again, a vaccine is not a cure-all because people, right. vaccines are never perfect, right. but like, it's look, better than what we have now. Like we know from the flu vaccine. In one sentence, Dr. Dietrich, how outrageous is it for someone not to wear a mask outside in New York City? It, it is horrific. I, I, I am amazed when I drive around certain areas of Brooklyn or Manhattan now, I have to tell you that the number of people not wearing masks is shocking to me. Uh, and as I've said in the past, if you don't wear a mask, you don't care about other people. Uh, the other shtick that I see commonly, which is amazing to me, is people wearing masks below their nose, right? <laughs> where their nose is at. That means you're wearing the mask for appearance and not for protection or not for protecting others. So I think we have to be very firm about this. Wearing a mask is a requirement now. Forget about the general public. From a Jewish perspective, it's a halachic requirement yep. to protect yourself and to protect others. Hey. And if you see somebody walking around without a mask, politely but firmly tell them, you need to get yourself a mask. It's inappropriate. you got to explain something to me medically. A friend of mine um, who I spoke to this week suffered tremendously. He had every symptom imaginable. Uh, three days of high fever, no taste, aching in every single muscle and bone in his body. You know, every imagine except never had trouble breathing. If this mm -hmm. thing attacks the lungs and that's its primary target, how is that possible? So, again, there's variability in every individual. I've seen people with zero symptoms who've had the disease to people who are obviously uh, is, uh, fatally ill. Uh, it is possible. I'm going to give you an example why there's various. Forget about the genetic variability for a minute, because we now know that depending on your own immune system is how you react, and that's the answer to that question. People have immune systems that function differently based on their genes, based on their nutrition, and based on their state of health, right? Uh, the one thing I will tell you, which is fascinating, and I said this from the beginning, and we're working on this on a research protocol now, um, children obviously seem to be doing better than adults. One of the issues that we've struggled with uh, is the ventilation issue in adults, whether we're using the right type of ventilation, the pressures that we use. One of the issues uh, is the issue of surfactant, which is a phospholipid in the lungs that's needed for oxygen and carbon dioxide exchange in the lungs at the alveolar level. The virus kills surfactant-producing cells. That's what the issue is. Children are born with a significant amount of surfactant, and we know that surfactant is probably going to end up playing a role in how we figure out the respiratory management of these patients when they're very sick. Wow. I suspect that what you're describing is just an individual variant between individuals. Some people have better immune systems than others. Some people have genetic predilections to getting sicker with certain infections. We've seen that in families where multiple people have been affected seriously. So there's going to be variability between individuals. But what you just mentioned, the most important lesson, is not to assume that if you're not terribly sick that you can't transmit the virus. Right. You could have no symptoms at all and transmit the virus. And, You've and, seen and, that over and over. And you've seen people with with people who you would have suspected, based on their medical history, had weak immune systems, get through this fine, and you've seen people who you assumed are as healthy as an ox, as they say, and unfortunately their immune system didn't hold up. Yeah. You, you've seen no, everything. I've seen five COVID-positive babies so far, to my knowledge. Uh, who were born uh, COVID positive, who did not get sick at all. There have been several that I've heard of in hospitals that, around New York City that have been admitted. The babies I took care of had no 
symptoms of COVID, not a fever, not a cough, nothing. Uh, they fared much better than their parents did. So yeah. that is a miracle from Hashem, that babies right. are, are relatively unaffected. I, I, I get... uh, but that's a great example. A yeah. virus that will kill a 55-year-old with high blood pressure, uh, will a baby will survive with not even a fever. And the baby is, by definition, immune compromised. No, but, you, but you've also seen 90-year-olds in bad health who survived it. Correct, correct. And I'll, those I... people have some... Uh, variability in their immune system that has allowed that to happen not, or their genetic. Not to we be, don't understand it yet. Not to be too spiritual, but uh, th- this whole episode has really forced us to increase our faith because basically he's the only one in charge and he, he knows the system and it's driving us crazy that we can't figure out what his system is in this case. Until he opens our eyes. But yeah. one thing I will tell you that I want people on a positive note to understand as a pediatrician for 30 plus years, God has been so good to children during this pandemic. Imagine for a moment, God forbid, if children were dying, God forbid, similar to adults are. Uh, This world would not be able to exist right now if that were happening. So Hashem has blessed the children. He's protected the children. And we should appreciate that. What an important point. What an important point. And by the way, in history, there have been epidemics that got the kids before anybody else every epidemic has gotten the kids before everybody wow. else the black plague uh, the pandemic flu uh, you can go down the line every epidemic has killed children not this one finally and that's the message for people finally dr d and i know that there are people not happy to hear what we're going to say about this but i think we have to be upfront with this community and with everybody in general um with all the work that you and officials and government officials and health officials and uh, recreational officials are going to do over the next month with all the work. And believe you me, there's nobody who wants to see this happen more than you, and I know that about you. We have to be realistic that the chance of a summer camp opening is at about 5%. Do you agree with that or not? I, I, my, I think that the decision to open summer camps, I don't think we're anywhere near being able to make that decision right now. Good to I hear. I think with the, with the information we have that children can be affected by COVID, albeit in smaller numbers, is going to impact that decision. Uh, and I think the biggest fear I have is that politics will play a role in the decision. I hear from a lot of people that they're pressuring the state and the local municipalities in Sullivan County and Orange County to open, open, open. My answer is I dare, uh, we dare not believe that any decision about opening camps would be related to pressure from individuals or groups or camps for that matter. Right now, or parents, I think parents are the biggest pressure on opening camps. Uh, we need to let the scientists decide whether camp will be viable this summer or doable. I am not qualified to make that decision, nor am I, do I have the information needed to make that decision. But the experts at the federal and state levels do, and I think they'll make the right decision. But without pressure, it shouldn't happen open because we want it to open. It should open because it's safe for our communities. That's the answer. And the likelihood is because of the way we see the governors operating, whatever one state in this area of the country decides, likely the other states will go along with it as well. Where they're trying to coordinate states because, unfortunately, or fortunately, people travel between states. What we do in New York impacts Connecticut and Pennsylvania and New Jersey. So 
yeah, it's going to have to be coordinated between states. This is the eighth Shabbos in isolation, except for you. You spend Shabbos with people who, unfortunately, are going through really difficult situations. Do you anticipate this Shabbos will be a bit easier in that area than past Shabbatot have been? Yes. Baruch Hashem, the hospital is definitely quieter. I've been to Maimonides every Shabbos for the last, you know, many weeks. I can't count it anymore. I'll be there this week as well to see patients and to, you know, give updates to any of those families who I have relationships with. Uh, and I have a few patients admitted as well, obviously. Uh, I have a, a young lady who was transferred to my service. Hopefully she'll be doing better today. But, yeah, I haven't had a Shabbos in many months now and uh, in several months and you know it's fine because that's a sacrifice that all physicians and nurses have made through this crisis right uh i'm just one of thousands uh but i will appreciate the the time when i can spend shabbos again at home shortly so those of us who are home tonight enjoying a a real quality shabbos meal with our families after having davened with our children in isolation we, we should keep that in mind that there are people having a much different type of experience Oh, yeah. And the families whose loved ones are lingering and very sick in the hospital still. There are hundreds of patients, obviously, in in every all of these hospitals that are still on vent each hospital that are on ventilators. And there's the fear uh, those families are alone. You know, their their loved ones are alone in the hospital yeah. and, and they're alone at home because, uh, unfortunately, uh, they can't get as much uh time with their loved one as we have with ours. So people should appreciate being home alone with their family right now because many families, their loved ones, stuck in a hospital on a ventilator. And there's tremendous fear, of course, uh, and worried about the elderly and others, relatives getting sick. Obviously, there's that fear, but there's another fear, I think, that's really starting to become prevalent, and that is that we've seen too many times, and obviously you've seen it more than anybody, people who look like they're on the road to recovery and then take a, a sudden turn that could be, happen within an hour or two, and, and things go terribly south terribly terribly fast and i think that's yeah. another fear people have that as even when you hear good news from a doctor about your friend or relative you still fear you know what's the next day going to bring correct it is a roller coaster every icu care is a roller coaster every icu case but covid is a particularly difficult roller coaster because physicians do not yet know everything we need to know about this disease we know a little but we're learning more every day. And, and the good news is that, you know, there's a great effort going on to coordinate that knowledge and, and to try to make it easier the next time around. And I think it will be uh, because America has stepped to the plate in a huge way. We've also been impacted more than any other country in a huge way. All right. Uh, anybody who makes an illegal minion this Shabbos, uh, you stand by what you've said in the past, that you have no interest in ever ever having anything to do with them again. Correct. A hundred percent. More than ever, because we now know that the thirty uh, percent of us walking around are COVID positive right now. We know that at this point. We've known that from the beginning. So if you're standing in a minion of ten people, uh, three of you are COVID positive on the average, right? Uh, we know that with the contagion rate of COVID, you'll pass it on to many, many more over time, over a short period of time. So. If you're selfishly davening with a minion, if you think your tefillahs are more important than mine or than Nachum's, then keep on doing it. Uh, but the Rabbanim have spoken about this. Those tefillahs are not uh, uh, appropriate at this point. You can daven b'yichidus, and Hashem will love you for it, because while you're davening b'yichidus, you're saving a life. 
Uh, when you dive in with a minion right now, you are potentially taking a life. And that is the truth. And whoever doesn't like that message, they need to reassess their, their uh, hashkafa. Dr. Dietrich, God bless you. Shabbat shalom. And thank you so much for the time this morning. Thanks, Malcolm. Have a good Shabbat. There he is, Dr. Stuart Dietrich. He has been on the front lines, as so many others, but he has taken a special role in keeping our community updated and continuing to warn our community about what we, what we need to know as we go through life on a daily basis during this coronavirus 19 situation.